Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The political environment is rapidly shifting. And I now hear many Democrats using similar terms that Republicans have used to describe immigration, about closing the border. And that includes the president. When Congresswoman Veronica Escobar was growing up, her father, a dairy farmer and county engineer, had a political nemesis, a powerful judge named Pat O'Rourke. Years later, Escobar's main political ally was the judge's son, Beto O'Rourke. And he ran uh, as part of a slate, uh, you know, a group of us who were friends who wanted to really uh, try to transform El Paso and and had greater ambitions for our community. These days, Representative Escobar is well-known in Congress for her work on immigration reform, including a bipartisan bill she introduced last year that would, among other things, reduce the influence of asylum judges, which is interesting because her husband is an asylum judge. He is a man who has to follow the law. I ran for office in order to change those laws. So Escobar is used to navigating situations when the bonds of family and friendship can clash with her principles. It is a skill she suddenly needs. Today, her most complicated relationship is with the president. Escobar serves as a co-chair for Joe Biden's re-election campaign, while Biden pursues policies on immigration, and foreign policy that she opposes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Veronica Escobar represents Texas's 16th congressional district, which includes most of El Paso, where some 2,000 migrants are arriving each day. She is also the deputy whip for the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the same group of Democrats who are picking big fights with Biden over the border and Gaza. Not such a big deal if you're AOC, but things can get a little complicated if you're whipping progressives against Biden policies in the morning and showing up on TV as a top Biden campaign official making the case for his reelection at night. I am a huge supporter of the president's. Does that mean I agree with him on everything? I, I don't, you know. There's, there's no two people who agree completely with one another. I stopped by Escobar's office on the fourth floor of Rayburn this Thursday to try to understand what it's like to navigate this unusual moment as both a high-profile opponent of key Biden policies and one of his top campaign surrogates. The simple answer to that question is, with a sense of humor. Wait, what's the, what, 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 is it in the teens? Next, next is it question. The, is it in the double digits? <laughs> next question. Is it in the double digits? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to answer this question. <laughs> we talked about her fascinating history in El Paso politics, Biden's border policies, her views on the Senate bill, not a fan, her own ideas of what a winning immigration policy looks like her concerns about Biden's policies in the Middle East and what she fears is the potential political fallout for his re-election, what might be on the agenda at the next secret meeting of Biden's eight campaign co-chairs, whether she'd rather Biden run against Nikki Haley or Donald Trump, and why she won't tell me, no matter how many times I asked, how many cats she has. All right, let's talk about your role as Biden's re-election co-chair but also the deputy whip of the Progressive Caucus. (laughs) And to me, this is fascinating because there's some issues uh, um, right now with the progressives and and Biden, and no more is that coming to the surface than on the issue of immigration. Um, Let's start with the, like we keep calling this a bill in the Senate. Nobody's actually seen this thing. Maybe by the time this airs tomorrow, we'll have seen it, but Let's start with um, the Senate bill that the man that you're trying to get reelected as co-chair is very, very strongly backing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, um, you know, I, I think what's important for me in terms of the context is this is a congressional obligation. Fixing our country's broken immigration system, reforming outdated laws and policies and processes, really, it's been congressional failure for 37 years. The president out of the gate gave us a comprehensive immigration reform bill. I actually helped work on that for then candidate uh, Joe Biden. So you were part of the group that put that together. Yes, yeah. I was uh he created these unity task forces. Right. Do you remember that? Yes, 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 yes. And there Bernie and yes. Biden, everyone's coming together. Right. Yeah. And they were these small task forces made up of, of about five or six people, you know, and there there were various issues yeah. and I was uh so privileged and honored to be part of the immigration and, uh unity task and force. And that legislation came directly was birthed from that process. Right. right. That's not the bill he's talking about much of these days. No, it's not. And a <laughs> the, lot has changed since then, right? Right. Uh, and, and what, I, has cha- what, what mostly has changed, correct me if I'm wrong, is, um, well, you tell me, what has changed? A couple of things have changed. When the president gave us that bill, yeah. House Democrats were in the majority, and we did not get that bill across the, yeah. the, the goal line. It kept on getting... It was not the top priority. For the House Democrats. Yeah. So, you know, I think it is really important. This is where a lot of my own frustration comes from. We had the power to pass that bill. We had the majority and we didn't do it. So, you know, here we have a Democratic president that needs Congress to do its job. Right. And we failed. What were you told at the time from Pelosi and the White House? Wait for him. Wait for infrastructure. Wait for the other priorities to pass first. You know the the what I heard from the Speaker's office because I was even though I helped shape that bill. Yeah, I was not a part of the whip team or the team that was in charge of moving that bill through the House. That job was given to to, to far more seasoned. Um, uh, members of Congress, and I absolutely deferred to them. And and I think this is so important to understand why I felt I needed to work on a bipartisan uh, comprehensive immigration reform bill uh, a year later. Um, but part of what, what, what I recognized is that our caucus is so diverse. Within our own caucus, there were things everyone f- found to critique yes. and not be pleased with. Yeah. You needed a, a second unity commission. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or group therapy, <laughs> one or the other. Um, but it was really at that point when I, I saw that we couldn't move that bill that I thought we we, we need bipartisan, uh, a bipartisan product. All right. So I know you've, you've put out um, a bipartisan product, but let's, we'll talk about that in a second. But that's not even on the table right now. Right. What's on the table is an asylum reform bill, a border security bill, um, with a number of pieces that I don't think um, anyone believed Joe Biden would support uh, a year or two ago. Um, but he seems to be the only person in Washington supporting this thing right now, <laughs> as Republicans abandon it. Let's start with the politics of this bill. The conventional wisdom is um, Joe Biden is um, facing a very difficult reelection. Immigration is a top issue. Some polls say it's even beats the economy in some of these polls, which is very rare. Um, Most people think that's because of uh, not unhappiness on the your side of of the immigration issue, but on from from coming from the the right Um, and. The White House political team believes that passing, moving to the right on immigration, passing this bill will not only, I think they, you know, I assume they think it's good policy, but they think it will help them defeat Donald Trump, project you definitely uh, support. Um, just unpack that political conversation as someone who has a foot in the Biden campaign as a co-chair and has your own strong views on immigration. Um Who's right? This is the toughest domestic policy issue that we are facing today, without a doubt. Congressional inaction for decades has brought us to a moment where 
the country is sick and tired of inaction on this issue. At the same time, we are seeing mass displacement of people all over the globe. Europe is facing it, and the Western Hemisphere is facing it as well. And Congress has used this as a political football for a long time, and the American people are sick of it. I mean, you know, I can tell you, uh, even in El Paso, a community of such goodwill, such a loving community, where people open up their wallets and their pantries to provide hospitality for migrants every single day, there's exhaustion. And there is this sense that, you know, the, 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 the issue has gotten so bad that something has to happen. Yeah. The president at the same time has tried various different strategies and at every turn he gets criticized by all sides. Some of my progressive colleagues have been very critical of some of his approaches. Yeah. Of course, the right has been super critical. And then at the same time, States like mine take him to court every time he introduces a new rule or proposes a new strategy. It's a no-win situation for the president. And unfortunately, members of Congress have gotten away with saying it's on the president, not on us. So they, the Congress has been very effective at deflecting and saying that it's not our responsibility when it is. And the American people just want to fix yeah. You know, they just want a solution. And I, I will tell you, I'll be very candid. You know, I wish the Democratic Party, the president included, had leaned in on this issue early on. It's what I advocated when we were in the majority. We should lean in and we should explain to the American people how difficult this is and how multifaceted the solution has to be. There's not a quick fix. There's not an easy band-aid. It will take years of public policy and appropriations to get to a point where things are more manageable, but nobody wanted to talk about it. And I think that was a, a strategic mistake on the part of my party, and every, that includes everybody. Sure, I leaned in. I talked about it. You know, I, I worked on the issue, and uh, I and I think it's one of the most pressing domestic issues that we have. I the the the, the political environment is rapidly shifting, and I now hear many Democrats using similar terms that Republicans have used to describe immigration yeah. about closing the border. And well, that includes the president. Yeah, he, I mean, he put out a statement the other day saying, you send me this legislation and I will close the border on day one. Yeah. What did you think of that? I was not happy. Uh, and I, you know, that's, that's absolutely not language or terminology that I would use. Not today, not ever. Um, and so, you know, the, the, I, I am a huge supporter of the president's when he called and asked me to serve as his national co-chair, I was so honored and I feel it is such a privilege. And I think he's one of the best presidents we have ever had. And I am fully, completely, absolutely behind him and will do everything I can to make sure he gets reelected. Does that mean I agree with him yeah. on everything? I I don't, you know. There's there's no two people who agree completely with one another, even in the most harmonious relationships, marriages, friendships, etc. So, you know, this is this is one of those issues where we don't see eye to eye. Um, and I will continue to press the solution I believe is the most appropriate, humane, effective, strategic solution. And I have yet to see what's in the Senate bill, but there are certain red lines for me. And if any of those issues are in there, I won't support it. You won't support it. You won't vote over it. So when you say you do anything to help get him reelected, voting for that kind of bill is not on that list. Well, and it's it's a little bit more practical for me in in – and here's an example of the red line. If there are rapid expulsion policies in there, I live on the border. I have daily communication with border patrol. Yeah. I, you know, talk to our shelter operators, our local government leaders. I bring members of Congress to see the impact. In fact, tomorrow, uh, today after votes, I'm bringing 10 colleagues to El Paso. 
to, to show what works and what doesn't. And something that has consistently not worked is rapid expulsion. And it cannot continue to be a solution. It creates more inhumane conditions for migrants. It creates more death, more persecution, more sexual assault, just horrific conditions for migrants. And it creates an, a, a business model for cartels because they move people from one part of the border to the other. And these vulnerable souls pay these uh, very bad actors to do that. So I don't see rapid expulsion as a solution. And if that's a part of the Senate negotiations, if that's a part of the bill, I can't support that. And I, I shared that with the administration yesterday. Who do you talk to in the administration about this? Who's the sort of point person? I frequently speak to Secretary Mayorkas, who is the most decent yeah. He's more of a hawk incredible, on immigration than you know. uh, human being. He's he's a solutions based person, yeah. but he is deeply rooted in some some values that we share. And he's doing everything. He, I mean, he was the one who ended family detention that you know the yeah. Trump administration um, created, yeah. and and actually other administrations as well. But um, you know, he ended that. He he doesn't get enough credit for some of the really great work that he's done that 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 upholds our values as a nation and as a party. Okay, so rapid expulsion is one. What about the? Um, let's go through some of the other parts of the bill. Um, there's some new language on detention. It sounds like. Would it, from what you can understand about that, and you're talking to people in the administration, you probably know more than most. What, um, what where do you think they're likely to end up on that, and is it good or bad policy? Well, you know, this is where it's. I don't. I don't want to opine too much on a bill where you know whose text I have not seen yet. Yeah. So I don't know um, if what the detention would would be. I don't know. If, for example, um, you know, like one of the issues being discussed is truncating the asylum adjudication process, you right. know, making it uh, quicker. Um, that's in my bill. But in my bill, it is also combined with legal representation for asylum seekers so that they have due process. Uh, also in my bill, which I've heard has been talked about by um, the Senate negotiators, but I don't know if it's a part of, of the, the final text, is using asylum officers instead of immigration judges to rapidly right. adjudicate. I think that's a good thing because it's the, and the reason that we put no, that- Say that again, the distinction is asylum officers mm -hmm. rather than- As Immigration judges. Got it. So if you yeah. if you are an asylum seeker and you're you want your claim adjudicated, instead of all cases going to immigration yeah. judges, because we just don't have enough yeah. uh, cases going to highly trained asylum officers, and that is a good thing That's in my view because it's a non adversarial situation. So you don't have an ICE prosecutor prosecuting an asylum seeker. Uh, you know, who will then need a lawyer to fight their case in front of a judge. Okay. It's a, a highly trained asylum officer adjudicating the case. I think it's a, I think that's a good solution. What about this uh, power that the president wants to use if um, uh, you hit a certain number of crossings, 4,000, um, then you have this new authority to shut down the border? I'd need to see the details of that because if all of that is rooted in rapid expulsion, that's a problem for me. What about the changes in uh, the president's uh, parole uh, authority that we've, uh, from what you can tell? My view is there should be no change to the president's parole authority. It is a key tool, especially during times of global unrest. It, it, to take away that tool, I think, would completely undermine the executive and undermine our ability to respond quickly to challenges outside of our control, outside of our borders. And we've seen that Congress isn't quick to act in times of that kind of global emergency and, and global challenge. Yeah. 
and it would undermine our our executive and our country. So I would support zero changes to parole. Are you surprised from what we know about this bill that Biden has gone as far as he has? Especially on parole, where there seems to be a but red we line don't, originally. We don't, but we don't know if parole's in the final deal, right? So this is yeah. all hypothetical. Yeah. Um, until I, you know, I mean, what it's kind of weird because the president is talking about this bill as mm-hmm. if it's like a a done deal. Mm-hmm. Everyone's talking about that, but we don't know what's in it, right? So, as someone who has not seen the bill yeah. or read the text, I it's you know I've been asked over and over what I think about it, and yeah. all I can say is you know I want to wait and see. Here's a real concern for me: parole. I yeah. don't want to see parole eroded or eliminated. I don't want them to touch parole. Yeah, and I'm I need to see even the parameters around rapid expulsion. Does that come with a significant amount of funding, for example, for neighboring countries to provide shelter? I don't know. You know, yeah. the, the, so yeah. I don't want. I'm keeping an open mind. I don't want to say I'm for it. I'm against it. There are certain issues that are of significant concern to me, uh, but I'm keeping an open mind. But from what you understand, you're, this is not this is not a bill you're likely to support. It would be very hard <laughs> yeah. for me to support it. Yeah. You know, and I will tell you, this is why I have been saying for a year now, it, while while the House Democrats are in the minority, I've been saying we need to focus on the only bipartisan bill that exists today, which, which is, is yours. my bill, which gives us something. That you co-sponsored with. Maria Salazar. And it gives us something. It gives us legal pathways. It gives us citizenship for dreamers. It gives us legal protections for the undocumented here. It gives us real strategies for addressing the border in exchange for enforcement and other things. But if we don't, if we don't compromise, then, then this is what happens. This is what happens. We get a whole lot of what we don't like and zero of what we do like. What's your view of the political bet that a lot of Democrats seem to be counting on here, and especially folks in the White House? You know, you I I, I just I, I don't know. You know, I, I will tell you just on the political front, everything changes day to day, right? And I have learned to not be a betting woman on politics yeah. in general. Uh, learned that pretty profoundly during the Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump election. Uh, Do people get things wrong back then? <laughs> yeah, we get a lot of things wrong. And the red wave that was supposed to shift yeah. the House significantly, which and resulted yeah. in you know an incredibly narrow majority for uh, House Republicans. So I say don't count on anything, don't bet on anything, and we've just got to work really hard every day. There seems to be a bipartisan consensus on the politics. You have Donald Trump whipping against this bill, calling up Republicans saying, don't do this. I need this issue. I need chaos on the border as an issue, essentially. And you have the, the president and his political team, uh, his campaign team, of which you're a part, saying, not exactly saying, but the implicit in the strategy here is we need to take this issue off the table. We need to move to the right on border security and pass this thing, and um, it will help him get reelected. Do you believe that? Here's what I believe. What I believe is regardless of that policy, what I hope the American people see is that there, that, that the majority of congressional Republicans in the Senate, in the House, don't want a solution. The majority of Republicans in the Senate, in the House, still take their marching orders from Donald Trump. And what Donald Trump yeah. has said is he wants the economy to collapse yeah. and he wants the border to become even more chaotic. Who could support a, a candidate and legislators who want to harm the country for their personal benefit and for their personal political gain. Right. So that argument, the, the way that Trump has played this, if this bill doesn't pass, um, 
there is. It's because of Republicans. But you are sort of aligned with them in, in a sense. You're smiling here. But, I, I haven't seen the bill, Ryan. Right. I like. <laughs> I, Fair enough. I mean, what if? What if? What if? As described to the as described. Let me tell you yeah. this. The, the, well, you don't I've, want Biden I've to not, shut I've down not, the border on day one. If, with this I've bill. not ruled out voting in favor of the bill. I have to see the bill. It's a bill that Biden says he will use to shut down the border on day one. That's not something you will support. I want to know what shutdown means. What if shutdown means something different than what I think it means? What do you think? What is the alternative? <laughs> so, to, what is the... What, I got. What, I got to see the text. Yeah. Honestly, I, like I cannot opine on something Fair. that that I just don't know what's in it. What's the easier issue for Biden and this election: immigration or Gaza? Immigration is the easier one. Yeah, just politically. I think so. You think because Gaza, you think is a serious campaign concern in terms of the. It is for me. Yeah, it's it's a. It's a serious concern as a legislator, yeah, and it's a serious concern for me. Uh, you know, the the campaign. I mean, it's it breaks my heart to see Muslim communities committing to defeating President Biden, which would help Donald Trump, who would institute a Muslim ban on day one. And yet, I understand their pain. I understand where they're coming from and their feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. But I also, you know, there's, I do believe that the, and I've called for a ceasefire. I called for a ceasefire 10 days after um, the horrific Hamas attack against innocent Israeli citizens and yeah. children. And, you know, and, and I understand what the president is trying to do. He's trying to navigate what is one of the most chronically challenging yeah. foreign policy issues mm -hmm. that multiple administrations have had to deal with and trying to ensure we don't end up in a wider war, you know? And so he is navigating things from the perspective of the president of the United States, not as a candidate for the office. And, you know, and, and he's trying to juggle a lot of different, um, competing, passionate, important views. So from a, um, but when we talk about the politics of these two issues in terms of Hispanics not uh, coming out to vote for Joe Biden over um, immigration versus the potential of, of some Muslim communities um, not supporting him over Gaza, you think actually the latter just to be crass about the politics for a second, is the bigger concern from your political point of view. Yeah, I do. You know, I, we, we have seen communities of color, including Latinos, um, you know, move a little bit more uh, rightward. Right. But right, right. I, you know, I will tell you, I think a lot of those issues are around economic concerns that the entire country has shared. And I, and I, I do see positive momentum for us on that front. Got it. And, and I, you know, I do think that all those votes are up for grabs. You know, I, I think, I think we can, we can win people back. I really do that we've lost. And I think solidly Latinos and African Americans are still, you know, solidly with us. I think, you know, the AAPI community also, I think generally these communities are solidly with us, but I, I you know, I don't see the same kind of direct efforts by you know, these other communities of color that I see in the Muslim community to actually working to, to withhold votes. Organized. Or yes, who are organizing for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I feel a sense, a real sense of urgency to make sure that we are as connected to them as possible. Uh, all right. So that's, that's very interesting. Do you think that that challenge extends beyond the organized uh, Muslim activism that you're talking about to just um, young voters? Yes. Yeah. It does. It does. And, and, but I, you know, I, th I am an optimist. I'm a Democrat, so I'm an optimist. And <laughs> I think there's still hope. And I also see what the president is doing uh, diplomatically yeah. to, to push 
a peaceful solution and to uplift, you, you know, the 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 Palestinian. Um, the obligation we have to a two-state solution. And I am, I mean, it, call me crazy, but I am, I am hopeful that there will be diplomatic progress. I, I know for the president, these communities are profoundly important, young people, yeah. the Muslim community. And so I am, I feel optimistic that, that we can build, rebuild that bridge. The next shoot or drop is likely to be military action in response to um, the attack in in Jordan the other day, which obviously, um, I'm sure you saw Tony Blinken say, you know, he's never seen the the Middle East as as dangerous dangerous as it is right now since 1973 and maybe before that. And we haven't even um, gotten to the point where there is a widening of the war because it sounds like Biden is going to respond to that attack. And, you know, the thing that concerns me um, significantly is the, the inability for Congress to really rise to the moment. Yeah. This, this should be the moment when all of those doubters of Ukraine here on Capitol Hill who, who don't want to support Ukraine, this should be a wake up call to them. This moment that we, that they have to put their, their, um, you know, for, for some of them, I, I, I think they're, they're following their, you know, the, the, the far right leaders in the party. This is a, a moment for them to recognize they're not taking us down a good road by refusing to fund Ukraine. Our adversaries are watching. It's not good. And that's not helpful to the president. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What has it been like personally to deal with um, being a co-chair. This is a big, prominent position. You know, you and Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> I want to know what the co-chair's meeting is like. Um, and um, these are my words, but I think this is uh, an honest assessment of it, not being someone that is really not on board with the Biden policy and politics on this issue that is near and dear to your heart. We have not had a co-chair meeting since that, uh, <laughs> since the president said that he would shut down the border, uh, on the day that he signed the, the bill. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll be having a co-chair meeting. I think, I can't remember if we have one on Saturday or not. I think we do. Really? What are um, these meetings like? Well, I'm Can not going to tell you. you. <laughs> they're great. I mean, I love my co-chairs. They're, is it virtual or in person? It's virtual. Who else is in the group? It, so Senator Coons, uh, um, uh, Senator um, Duckworth, uh, Mr. Katzenberg, uh, my colleague, Mr. Clyburn, um, uh, uh, Governor Whitmer. I'm trying to remember how many is that. That's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm missing somebody. And actually... Um, Oh my gosh, the incredible Louisiana uh, former lieutenant governor uh, uh, who was part—I can't believe I'm stumbling oh, on this because he's such a Mitch Landry. Mitch, yeah, because yeah. he, he's he's a yeah. good friend. The, I, I yeah. have just so you know, I have like a really bad memory, so it's not. I that, do that all the time. <laughs> like the, the uh, you know, when I'm talking to my cats, for example, I'm like you, you, even though you know. What like, are the cats' names? Is a test. Well, well, I'm not going to tell you all of them because then you'll know how many I have, but. <laughs> Wait, what's the what, what is it in the teens? Next next is question. The, is it in the double digits? <laughs> next question. Is it in the double digits? I'm I'm you know, I'm not gonna answer this question. It, she said. <laughs> wow. But you 
Do you think it's easier for you to remember the cat's names or Mitch Landry's cat's <laughs> Mitch. Wait, all right, so Saturday is the meeting. What is that going to be like? You know, we talk about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Is Gaza Israel on the... Is on the We've uh, talked about that. Yeah. yeah. As a campaign co-chair, who would you rather face, Donald Trump or Nikki Haley? Personally, yeah. you know, I, I, I think it's important that, that Donald Trump be on the ticket for a couple of reasons. Interesting. Why? As a member of Congress who was trapped in the gallery on January 6th, you know, I, I, I think it was a real dereliction of duty on this, on the part of senators who voted to acquit him. And they actually helped create this moment where the very person who was, uh, um, responsible for that January 6th attack against our capital, against our constitutional republic, against our democracy, the, the blame really lies at, at the feet of those senators who failed to convict him. They have an obligation to face up to this moment and do the right thing and speak out openly against their nominee. This should be a test for them as well. But I look forward to defeating Donald Trump once again. That's so interesting. So in other words, you'd rather have him on the ticket because you feel like that makes the election a moment of like final accountability? Yes. You know, that this is probably coming from a place of having been trapped on Jan- you know, yeah, in the gallery I, I, on January 6th. You know, so it's hard to separate in yeah. some ways, hard to separate my personal feelings of outrage yeah. uh, toward Donald Trump, toward his enablers, and toward his current supporters. So I, I want this to be a test for them as well. So I guess there's a debate among Democrats between you never want there to even be a chance that Donald Trump could be president again. Yeah. And part of that means praying for him not actually to be the Republican nominee. Right. Because that gives him, um, I mean, in a divided country, a 50-50 shot of becoming president. Some of the polls right. say maybe a little bit more. And you throw in some of the spoilers. Yes. I'm sure, like, I'm sure it'll be a big topic on Saturday at your meeting. Yeah. I mean, the, the, frankly, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm personally, uh, you know, watching all of that very closely. This is going to be a close election for sure. You know, you look at the country and how divided we are and not, none of those third party candidates have a chance of being president. They don't. They are only playing the role of spoiler. So what does the campaign do about the third party? issue here. You've got no labels out there trying to recruit someone. You've got RFK Jr. polling in double digits. What's your view of the third? I wish that we had video because your your <laughs> smiles on some of these oh. questions are are say a lot. Yeah. You know, the the, the we we are going to take everything very very seriously. Yeah. And you think there's any reason with RFK Jr. to ask him not to run? I wish his wife would reason with him. <laughs> The, the, you know, this, this is a real test for our country. Yeah. And that includes those people thinking of acting as spoiler. Um, is there anything the campaign can do? Or it's just a matter of if they're on the ballot messaging and fighting? You know, I, 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 I have not spoken to campaign lawyers. Yeah. I don't, you know, so that, that is outside of my purview. Whose account is uh, RFK Jr. and his wife? It sounds like it should be Katzenberg. <laughs> it's, a, it's an LA issue. <laughs> right. It's a California issue. Um, yeah, that's, that's outside of my volunteer pay grade. The president of the United States is not a young man. And this seems to be um, on, the vo- on the minds of a, of a lot of voters. Um, as co-chair of one of the co-chairs of this campaign, um, what do you say to a lot of Democrats who are like, is this a great idea? I mean, maybe we should have had a primary. Maybe he should have stepped aside. He seems, um, he, he seems old. There's no doubt that the president is a senior citizen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, but I, I, I love to tell a couple of stories okay. so that people understand how impressive he is. Uh, first, the first time that I met with him in the Oval Office and 
said, oh, you know, Mr. President, this was early on. You know, I, you probably don't remember me, Veronica Escobar from El Paso, Texas. And he said, of course I remember you. And then he proceeded to tell me a story about El Paso and a woman he dated when he was younger. He described the neighborhood she lived in. I knew exactly what neighborhood he was talking about. He described the area around the neighborhood and I was blown away. I mean, I told you so just a funny. little while ago, like, I can't remember all my cat's names. Yeah. Um, like his memory is impressive. I've traveled with him. Yeah. I could not keep up. I'm, I'm going to be 55 this year. Yeah. I don't have that kind of stamina that he has. So yes, he is a senior citizen. Um, but we have not had, I think, a more productive administration in my lifetime. We have had, we have not seen the kind of investment in my community ever before in my lifetime. All of that is because of Joe Biden's leadership, his incredible commitment to this country. And I have never seen a more committed, energized, engaged, and um, focused leader in my lifetime. And you think people shouldn't be worried about his age? No. I mean, you know, I the the can anything happen to any of us at any time? Absolutely. Yeah. Um the chances get a little more higher when the older you get though. It's true. That that there's no doubt about that. But you know, I I have that that's not a concern of mine. I think we first met, I was trying to think about this on the way over, back when every national reporter would parachute into El Paso to write about Beto. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. that's when I met most national reporters, actually. Yeah. I was going to say, you probably met the, the whole contingent. And uh, Veronica Escobar would always be on that tour. The Beto folks would always say, go, go, go see Veronica. Um, and little did I know, you were just pushing him out of that seat so you could, <laughs> so you could have this. Oh. Uh, but wait, let's start, though, with coming up in El Paso. Let's start a little bit with. Uh, your background so people understand where you're coming from and growing up in that section of the world. Um, and just a number of things from your bio that interest me. Uh, first of all, fourth of five kids. I'm the fifth of six, so I kind of know what that's like. Yeah. And four brothers. That's right. And a dairy a dairy family. So just that's right. give, us a, give us a little bit about what it was what it was like in the Escobar family growing up. Yeah, a lot of testosterone. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and really just a, such a wonderful family. I mean, I, I, I grew up, uh, with a very strong mother and she's amazing. She had to be. Yeah, she had to be it, like this absolute matriarch and the sweetest, kindest, gentlest dad. And a very hardworking family. And growing Was it on up, a dairy? Uh, about a block away from the family dairy. And the family dairy was started because of the Mexican Revolution. My, Wait, really? Oh, I don't know that part. Tell my us grandparents fled the Mexican Revolution, and that's how they ended up in the U.S. That's how they ended up in El Paso. And they. Uh, when you say fled the Mexican Revolution, what was their situation? Uh, the Mexican Revolution was really damaging, especially to a lot of dairy families, is what my my uh, aunts and uncles and my dad told me that they learned from their parents. <clears throat> the the soldiers who were near dairies would slaughter cows wow. uh, for food, um, and it, it was a very violent uh, period. So my- What part of Mexico were they in? Chihuahua. So when they fled the Mexican Revolution, they ended up in El Paso in the teens, the wow. I think like 1913, something like that, and uh, set up the dairy. And my dad was born on the dairy, and we lived about a block away from it. And it was a fully functioning dairy farm until the 90s. And the newest generation, my brothers and I, none of us really 
wanted, you wanted to. to it. No one was into <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It's you know, it's a it was a challenging life. There, yeah. you know, no. If if there if if a cow got sick on Christmas Day, you know, it didn't matter that it was Christmas Day. No days Day. off for the cows. No days off. <laughs> if machinery broke down, I mean, there were many times when in the middle of the night, all the lights would go on because my brothers, even when we were in high school, would yeah. you know have to go to the dairy fix machinery or something came up. Uh, it, and it really, for my dad, it was like having two wives, my mom, having two families in some respects, my mom and all of us, but then the dairy was another major commitment. Yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> exactly. I've, 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 no, one of the great stories in your background is about how the O'Rourke family and the Escobar family has <laughs> intersected. Um, I'm fascinated by this considering you and Beto were like, you know, I'm crossing my fingers. You guys... Uh, listeners that don't know good friends good friends yeah um but the o'rourke's and the escobars have this fascinating history (laughs) that predates the beto and veronica history could you tell us that story yeah it's and it's so wild it's the world is so small and El Paso is even smaller. It is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So my dad, his day job, my dad was an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and he was the county engineer for 30 years. Right. This is the thing. So he had this dairy mm-hmm. and that was like a big part of his life. Right. But okay. He's also went to college for engineering. Right. Okay. Right. And worked for the the government. Right. For local government, for the county. And my dad and my brothers would get up pre-dawn to deliver milk all over the city. And then my brothers would go to high school and my dad would go to work. Uh, And so my dad's- You escaped this fate? I did. (laughs) But, you know, I've uh, not completely because my mom and I were, you know, we'd hold down the fort. And there were many times when I would rinse off jeans filled with manure uh, that, you know, when my brothers would come home and, and leave the manure covered clothes out and, you know, my mom and I would wash and cook, et cetera, and yeah. kind of hold down the, the, the fort at home. Um, but anyhow, so, uh, my dad, Benjamin Escobar, incredible human being who I miss very much was the longtime county engineer for 30 years. Wow. And, uh, in the, the last few years of his time in, in uh, county government, he, was not um, appreciative or did not really like the new county judge. And the county judge, a county judge in Texas is like the county executive in most counties. So it's right. it's an elected position. It's like mayor of, yeah. of the county. Very important, influential person. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the head of commissioner's court, the head of county government, basically. And uh, that county judge was Pat O'Rourke, Beto's dad. Beto's dad. And my dad and Beto's dad did not like each other. How and bad was it? It was pretty, it was so bad that during a local government meeting, a commissioner's court meeting, my dad had had enough and he literally quit in the middle of the commissioner's court meeting, stormed off. It was front page news wow. in El Paso. And he and, and Beto's dad. Clash. Clashing that much. Yeah, yeah. So you grew up with like the O'Rourke name being like cursed in your house. <laughs> Ish. <laughs> I just see the movie version of this. And that's, so how did you and Beto finally meet and like discover this history? Or was it like you it's grew up together? So, no, we didn't grow up together. Beth, you know, I, I grew up in the lower valley in El Paso. Okay. You know, but quite a, a geographic distance from where Beto grew up. He grew, grew up in up. a fancy part of town. Yeah, he honest. was fancy, but not so <laughs> fancy. Um, and the, I, I'm, you know, actually, I think I first met Beto. Uh, actually, I do know when I first met Beto, uh, an incredible mayor. Uh, or a candidate at the time, Ray Caballero was running for mayor of the city of El Paso. It was 2001. I was a volunteer on uh, Ray's campaign. Bethel was running a little like online newspaper ish. Right. Oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, Stanton yeah. Street. And yeah. we he all was had to cover everything the about the Bethel biography. Remember <laughs> yeah, when he was running for president? That's right. That's right. We all had to go and find all those pieces he wrote <laughs> and see if there was anything scandalous oh, gosh. in them. Yeah, yeah that's right. It was the whole like punk rock, you know, youth. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so we we met the first time during during that 
era. And then that Ray won and I became Ray's communications director. That's when I left teaching. I, so I, that's like 2012? 2001. 2001. Sorry. 2001. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I've known- 2012 is Beto's campaign. I'm confusing with that. Yeah, right. Right. Later. Yeah. This was Ray Caballero's right. campaign when I met uh, Beto more than 20 years ago. And then Beto ran for city council. And he ran uh, at, as part of a slate, uh, you know, a group of us who were friends who wanted to really uh, try to transform El Paso right. and, and had greater ambitions for our community. Uh, we thought, you know, local government is 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 a good place to do this. So Bethel ran, another friend of ours, Steve ran, another friend of ours, Susie ran. I I worked really hard on Susie's campaign, but it, it was really this is like, coordinated. This, it's, like, it's like friends only yes. all decided to like... Yeah. Take over government. Exactly. And then the next year, or actually a few months after that, I ran for county government. Got it. So you guys were all coming up together. Yes. Do you remember when you and Beto first discovered or talked about like the fact that your parents hated each other? Gosh, I, I, that I don't remember. But, um, you know, Beto was, is obviously just such a sweet, kind human being. He, when he was going through his dad's paperwork, he found a letter that my dad wrote and it was, you know, sort of like a, a report or something like that. Yeah. And like he- Like an engineering report sort of thing? Uh, I think so. It was like a cover letter for something and he gave it to me and I just remember after, I'm, I'm going to get emotional. I just remember like weeping after that to see my dad's Signature, and oh, it was just it was yeah. such you know such a sweet when did you Beto lose your dad? thing. I lost my dad about twenty five years ago. Oh, so it's been, it's yeah, been it's been a while, but yeah. you know, you just you yeah. you never get over losing a parent. Yeah. Who was your political mentor growing up in politics? There, what like who was the person that got you into politics? You know, I that's a I didn't really have a political mentor early on. Yeah. And it was Ray uh Caballero actually who really badgered me into thinking of running for office. I did not want to do it. Why I not? You know, I I I thought there's got to be somebody better. There's yeah. somebody who will be better at this. I was not comfortable with the idea of being out front. And being in public. And, and like exactly. Subjecting yourself to nosy reporters, <laughs> asking <laughs> personal questions. Exactly. It, yeah. it didn't, nothing about it seemed appealing to me. Yeah. Nothing. You know, not having a private life. Uh, you, you know, the, I had lived through two years of Ray being in city government. All the open records requests, yeah. the, uh, you know, people getting upset at community meetings. And I just thought, this is not for me. I yeah. don't want to do this. Do you ever, do you ever think that still? No. Uh, you what, know. what was the turning point where you were like, actually, this is a great life and I want to like keep rising up the ladder? Well, the, the turning point for actually even getting into office was a after weeks and weeks of Ray badgering me and telling me, you know, please think about it. You'd be great. Do it. Yeah. I'll, you know, I'll support you, blah, blah, blah. And I kept saying, Ray, thank you so much that, you know, the, I'm so flattered. That's so kind of you. I will find somebody to run for this seat. I don't want to do it. And he he used like classic Catholic guilt on me is, is what got me thinking because he said to me, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave you alone for a little bit. I want you to seriously think about it, but I, I want to ask you a question and you need to think about this question as you consider this. Why on earth do you think somebody else should do the job that you don't want to do? Oh, right, right. And I was like, ooh, ouch. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, that's a good question. Why do I think it's somebody else's responsibility to do you something I think around. is important? It's like, yeah. And it was that question that made me think seriously about running for office. And then after that, you know, I was in completely and... Thankfully, I won that race, and then I ran for county judge for the seat that Bethel's dad used to have. Uh, was reelected to that, so I served three terms in county government. Was that when you uh, served in that position? Was that position the same as it had been in the previous era in terms of its power and what a big deal it was locally? Because I think some people don't understand that. Yes, you probably had more power then than you have now as a member I, of Congress. I did, I did, and actually, you know, I it's miss like being a little local governor, <laughs> right? And, may and, mayor is and a, a governing body of five, you only have to convince three people, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. a lot easier. So you and were an executive. Results. 
Yes, I was yeah. an accounting executive. Does it frustrate being Congress frustrate you the way it frustrates former executives, mayors, governors when they go to the Senate? And yes, yeah. it is so frustrating. And this, the the most frustrating issue of all for me has been immigration. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about that for sure. Wait, last thing on some of this history is um, you've all, you've been a campaign staffer comms person as well as a principal and an elected official. I'm sure people ask you this who want to get into politics. What's the essential difference between, say, you know, being on, you know, one of those Beto campaigns helping him get elected versus being in a position um, as an elected official and it, making that transition? A lot of people listen, who listen to this podcast are interested in questions like that. How do you, what's the essential difference going from the background to being, you know, the person. Huge. But I will tell you, I don't know that I could have been as effective a candidate had I not done all that volunteer work. I get asked all the time by young people, especially in the community, what should I do? How should I prep? I want to one day run for office. And I've told all of them, volunteer for people who inspire you because you learn so much of the day to day. You, I mean, you know, the first time I ever knocked on a door was when I was campaigning for someone else. The first time I raised money was for someone else. The first time I phone banked was for someone else. And for me anyway, it, it was much easier to, you know, knock on doors, fundraise, phone bank for other people. It's it's different when you're asking people to give you money or to vote for you. At least for me, it was. Yeah. Um, and so that decade of volunteerism really helped make me a very strong campaigner. Once it was time for me to campaign for myself. All right, I have one more question about um, tensions between your uh, family life and your public life. And I think you probably know what I'm going to ask you about because this comes up in a lot of the clips about you, but. Your husband worked for Jeff Sessions, essentially, doing uh, stuff on the sort of other side of the immigration issue from what you are most associated with. And I probably haven't explained that perfectly, but can you can you help us make sense with that chapter of <laughs> your life? Sure. Uh- <laughs> Um, so my husband was actually nominated to be an immigration judge by President Obama. Okay. And the process took so long and dragged out so long that his appointment and hiring didn't happen until the early months of the Trump administration under Jeff Sessions. So I have had people say, your husband is a Trump judge. And I have to explain the timeline and how long the background check process takes. And, yeah. you know, he he was offered the position under a Democratic a presidential administration. Yeah. Uh, and he is someone who adjudicates asylum claims. You know, he's he's a judge. That's he makes his these, job. That's his job. Yeah. Um, he, so you know this asylum issue pretty well. I, I yes, yes, you and and I watch have him been up close dealing with this. And, you know, interesting, we don't talk a whole lot about his work, um, but we we do sometimes. Uh, But I will tell you, you know, early in my first campaign, when I ran for for Congress the first time, my Democratic opponents, because the big battle in El Paso, because it's a blue seat, is in the the primary. primary. Yeah. So they attacked you from the left on this. uh, All sides. All sides. Uh, And... You know, and I, it's, it still will, uh, come up as, as a line of attack. And my view is it was then and it is now. You know, I am very proud of my husband. He is a wonderful human being, a good man. And his, his, for anyone who knows him, his politics are very clear. They're very aligned with mine, but he is a man who has to follow the law. I ran for office in order to change those laws. Got it. So that that makes it a very interesting power couple. You know, he would not consider himself a part of a power couple. 
<laughs> he says, you why he says, you have all the, you're the power, you're the only power in the couple. Uh, I, well, you know, he, he is, he is a very private person, Got very, it. very private. Uh, he is, he, he keeps a lot of things close to the vest. Uh, yeah. You know, he's, he's not always with me at events, you know, campaigning. I'm frequently by myself or with my team or with supporters, yeah. uh, in part because I have actually tried to keep my family as private as possible. I love bragging about them and I love, yeah. you know, I try to sh share photos of, of them whenever I can. But I also, you know, politics is so ugly. I have volunteered to do this and to take on these attacks, yeah. I try to protect my family as much as possible. I, I will get to the bottom of how many cats you have. <laughs> good we'll luck. Some good investigative reporters on. <laughs> um, but thank you. I know you have to go vote. Thank you, really Ryan. It was it. such a pleasure. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. You can email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. 